So do you maybe not want to get sick and die? Do you want to address your sugar addiction, sugar cravings, your inability to stay on a diet? Do you know why you can't stay on a diet? So we're gonna talk about that today with Maddie. He is just, I mean, just a sexy voice, ladies, but he's also just amazing. So his podcast is How to Not Get Sick and Die, which I absolutely love. I was on his podcast before. He's just an incredible interviewer, incredible man, scientist, nutritionist, and he is an emotional eating coach. So he specializes in helping women and busy moms get control of their emotional eating. And then that way it helps support weight loss, gut health, energy. We know that. We all know that when we're emotionally eating, we're going to pack on the pounds because we're not even paying attention to what we're doing. And we're feeding that dopamine that Maddie and I will talk about, that dopamine need to fulfill the whole that is. So we go to food, we go to drugs, we go to alcohol, we go to these addictions, food being a big one, to fill that missing piece of what's inside of us. And it could be from past trauma. We talk about that. It could be biological that you are craving sugar to get your blood glucose up. We're going to talk about all of that on this show. Maddie's gone through his own personal development. He is so passionate about showing people how to level up their health. So passionate. So enjoy this amazing interview with Maddie Lansdowne. I made Hormone Fixer for you to get more of that GSD hormone. You want adequate levels of testosterone in order to have motivation, in order to burn fat, in order to build sexy lean muscle that is not only going to make you better at burning fat every single day, it's also going to protect you. It's going to protect you as you age. It's going to protect your bones. You want sexy lean muscle in order to have a metabolism. So get some hormone fixer. Start taking it and just enjoy the benefits. What we have been hearing from the community of people taking it, improved energy, improved strength. They're seeing their muscles pop out and look amazing when they're working out. They're getting that pump. They're having a libido. They actually want to have sex again. You cannot go wrong with Hormone Fixer. It increases your growth hormone. It increases your testosterone. The cyst is quadrangulus and it helps your bones. The Tonkatali helps keep your sex hormone binding globulin low, which we want that as well. So it's not bound up to our thyroid hormones and testosterone. Try the Hormone Fixer. Trust me, it's going to change your world. Maddie, oh my gosh, it's been forever. I have wanted to have you on the podcast for so long. Time zones, schedules, all that kind of stuff gets in the way. But finally, we are here and we are going to talk today about a variety of things, but really, you know, kind of your jam about talking about emotional eating and why diets just don't work, which I know will resonate with my audience because Many of them are currently trying a diet right now. Many of them currently struggle with emotional eating and they're on that roller coaster, even of like some self-loathing, self-blaming. Mm. I mean, I was there when I didn't know I had a thyroid problem. The scale was going up, definite, definite self-blaming. Maybe it's my fault, all the things, dieting even harder. So thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your wisdom on this subject, because it's one that, that so many people need and, and need to hear and need to learn more about. Yeah. Hey, Amy, thanks. And I'm, yeah, I'm glad we finally made this happen. Uh, thanks uh, to time zones and all of the different, you know, daylight savings things. But yeah, it's such an important topic. And, and I guess the reason that I ended up here was simply because I started off sort of as a scientist in cancer research. And I started there. And one of the first things that I learned in that journey was that on the World Health Organization website, they literally say in the first sentence on the cancer page that 90 to 95% of diet and lifestyle are the cancer causes. And I sort of said, well, why is this building that I work in not about diet and lifestyle? And so from there, you know, I would walk through, throughout the clinics all day and visibly see that everybody was overweight. And so I thought, oh, I'll become a nutritionist. And so I went down the nutrition path and then I started doing all of these different things and wellness events and retreats and stuff. And I was telling people what to eat. And generally speaking, pretty much everyone that I spoke to in any country, irrelevant of education level or socioeconomic status, 
everyone pretty much knew that meat and vegetables and fruit was pretty good. Like there was nobody that did not know that. And there was nobody that didn't know chocolate for breakfast was probably a bad idea. So I was like, if everybody kind of knows, then why aren't people sticking to the healthy food or sticking to the diet that they need to heal their, you know, their thyroid or their cancer or their diabetes or whatever it is. And so that's what led me to the the, sort of the cause of the cause, if that makes sense. We often think of, you know, the cause when we talk about medicine or healthcare as something physical. And what I discovered is in this very privileged world that we're in, often the cause is a set of belief systems or we're, you know, addicted to the the good fuzzy feelings that sugar, sugary foods give us. And we've developed this emotional dependency on food to manage stress, to manage sadness, to manage loneliness, to manage boredom, procrastination, you know, all of these different types of things. And so whilst all the people that use the foods to do those things, they all know what they should be eating, which then starts a conversation. And you mentioned it too, a self-loathing conversation of, I know what I should be doing, but I'm not doing it. Absolutely. Your background in in the cancer realm is fascinating because we know that sugar feeds cancer. So, and, and really in any other country, except the U S I'm sorry, in any other country, except the U S you guys actually focus on the nutrition piece. Like you said, 90 to 95% of cancer is tied into diet and lifestyle over here. Cancer patients get told, just go ahead and go home and eat whatever you want. My dad was there and he was told literally, yeah, make sure you're eating ice cream and whatever, you know, kind of calories you can put in just to keep the caloric intake up so you don't lose any yeah. weight. And it's like, wait a minute. If cancer literally feeds on sugar like a little Pac-Man, why in the hell would we give a cancer patient more sugar? So it doesn't even make sense. So yeah, yeah. I, I love that you start there. And what's interesting to me that I want you to dive more into is that topic of dopamine, because I was driving today and it was kind of just a crappy day. And I thought to myself, you know, I think maybe I'll just stop at the grocery store and and get some food that I love, like the comfort food, like maybe like peanut butter and jelly, or maybe some Oreos, because that's my favorite. And I was able to stop myself and realize where my thought process was going. And Mm -hmm. I literally went, wait a minute. I'm, I'm literally going for something, something comforting to raise my dopamine levels. And I didn't go to the store. Like I knew what was happening, but I can also in that moment, I could step back and see this is what happens to people. And they go on autopilot and they go to the store, they go to the vending machine, they go to McDonald's and they feed that need. They feed that, that dopamine because food especially crappy food provides us that dopamine. So can you kind of dive more into that rabbit hole? Yeah, absolutely. And just before I do, just to touch on the cancer yeah. and nutrition piece is that it's exactly the same here. Like I used is to, it? oh. yeah, it's exactly the same. The focus in a cancer setting is uh, energy input because the the belief and understanding around diet and cancer in a medical setting is that, you know, chemotherapy and radiation is one of the most devastating experiences to the body, which is why there's so many side effects. And I actually recorded a podcast on my show this week with a cancer patient um, who talks about nobody talks about the diseases after the disease that is induced by the medication. And so the same thing here, because it's such a devastating energetic experience, uh, and I don't mean woo-woo energy, I mean physical energy, like the idea is just calories, calories, calories. And so you, you're going to get that from your pizza, your McDonald's, your ice cream, your chocolate. And I used to get in debates with the dietitians at the hospital all the time. Once I started down this rabbit hole, they were like, oh no, Maddie's coming. Like <laughs> he's going to talk about like steak and vegetables vegetables like how dare oh. i you know shaking <laughs> it up a so, little bit the cancer i sound. know i know so um but hopefully you know hopefully eventually it changes and i guess conversations like this allow people to open their mind to to different possibilities because you can get lots of energy from lots of really good food too you know so okay. um Anyway, dopamine. Uh, so yes, so basically, the I guess our, the human experience is often driven by dopamine, and and this has been the case since the you know, the dawn of time when we were were born, and it's the 
hormone or the neurotransmitter that is released when we basically achieve positive things. And once upon a time, it took a lot of risk in order to get that reward of dopamine, that feeling like when you finish a workout or when you eat the chocolate or when you have a good experience with your partner. There's a couple of others that are involved, serotonin, oxytocin as well, but dopamine's the main one. And it's it's the, the hormone that drives you to do stuff that for your family, for yourself and keep your body alive. And traditionally it was sort of focused more on procreation. So obviously sex, um, hunting food. So there's a big risk like to you had to put your body on the line, your life on the line to hunt food. And so it, there was a lot, a lot of space between me now and me with a dopamine hit. And there's a huge amount of risk that goes into that. Fast forward hundreds, thousands of years, we're now in a, a society where we can produce dopamine experiences uh, without any risk or without any effort. Like we're almost at the point where Amazon will feed you your food, <laughs> you know, like right. we're, we're so close to not have to, having to put in any effort. And so what this does with our dopamine receptors is because they, they are like, that's what drives us is that we are basically build up an addiction to our own dopamine supply. And so as we, you know, and this can start from a very young age, especially if we start giving young children sugar to shut them up or screens. Screens is the other really big one that we're all um, often addicted to. You know, we want, we use screens or reels or stories to numb out, to just totally disconnect. Basically, it's just, a, it's, if you think about it like a drug addict, it's the same idea. We start with a little bit, a bit of a taste for how quickly we can get dopamine when we're a bit younger. We also feel that sort of sense of freedom when we're a bit younger, you know, young adults, so we can do what we want. And so we go towards the chocolate and the pizza and the ice cream for breakfast, maybe we do whatever we want because we're free. And then that develops this, this habit of moving towards these food. And it feels so good because we get that dopamine serotonin hit and sometimes even a bit of oxytocin, which usually is kept for human interactions like hugs and connection and kisses and that kind of thing. And we start producing these, um, these hormones on our own. And so whether you're stressed or whether you're um, happy, you're moving towards these experiences to make yourself feel good because we all want to feel good. The problem is that we've got a body that was designed for 10,000, 100,000 years ago in the modern era. And I think as well, a mistake that is often made is that there's an assumption that because social evolution has moved forward, so has biological evolution. And we haven't changed very much in thousands of years. And so we've got this, we've got this sort of body that that we actually can't control and we've got to work really hard cognitively to override that dopamine. And that's what we would call willpower is trying to hold yourself out away from the, the dopamine experience as long as possible. And anybody that's tried any kind of diet knows that willpower doesn't last very long. It's good in small bursts, like, you know, at the gym to do the next set or, or, you know, to maybe hold your tongue in an argument for a, a few minutes, but it doesn't last months or years. And the only real things that shock people into permanent change are a diagnosis or a, the death of somebody that they really care about. Outside of those two things, it's very hard to manufacture the level of willpower that you would need to, to manage your dopamine for years. And so it's just the, the idea that we yeah move slowly move towards sugar and then we move faster and faster towards it to the point that it's an automated habit whenever we feel lonely or sad, we've got a deficit or when we've got our, our stress hormones up as well, our cortisol and adrenaline. And, and sometimes people will realize when they're emotional eating, they even emotionally eat when they're happy. And that's because we feel most safe when we're at our baseline and everybody's baseline threshold for their, for their body is different. And so even when you're happy and excited, you might find yourself going towards particular foods because you need to go back to what feels normal and your body feels normal when it's got a certain amount of sugar in the blood. Right. And so in either experience, you might go towards those foods. And that's why it's, you know, it's not just negative emotional eating. It can be positive emotional eating too. And people can find themselves when they're happy buying loads of chocolate or eating, you know, lots of cake at the party or whatever it might be, because that's how they feel the most familiar. And so now we're in this world where we're solving dopamine problems with no risk in order to get that reward and by ourselves in our apartments, disconnected from everyone. So nobody can see what we're doing whilst at the same time, producing a heap of negative uh, thought patterns in our mind by beating ourselves up because we know we shouldn't be doing it. That's exactly it. That's exactly the cycle. Now I have heard and correct me if I'm wrong, but when we measure the kind of dopamine rush, dopamine hit that people get when we compare the different dopamine sources. So, I mean, let's call them out too. There's drugs, there's cocaine, there's yeah. gambling, there's sex addiction, there's porn, there's sugar. When we look at 
I have heard that the connection between cocaine and sugar, that it literally produces the same amount of dopamine Mm -hmm. when you compare those two. And it's like, wait a minute, sugar is legal. Sugar is available. Cocaine is completely illegal and will kill you. So to compare those two is very eye-opening because that really tells you the level of addiction that can occur from that particular dopamine rush that people get with sugar. And then you compound that with the fact that it it is legal. It is available. It's yeah. normal, quote unquote, because people just eat sugar today and it's promoted on TV. You don't see people doing lines on on CSI, <laughs> right? You know, so <laughs> so it it's it just compounds the addiction and almost enforces it and makes it okay. Yeah. I think that's a very valid point. And a lot of people have um, a challenging relationship with food because of the fact that this thing that does so much harm is encouraged. And even if we go down to our own social group outside of like the marketing and advertising, that's absolutely everywhere and inescapable. Um, I I think I heard somebody say recently that somebody in the 1500s was exposed to as much advertising in their entire life as we get today in a single day of our experience. And so we've got also got all of this information that our brain is subconsciously absorbing as well. And so, but our own social group, if you, if you've ever been in a situation where you needed to change your diet or you need to you wanted to stop drinking maybe or at least drink less you will know that your social group is the first people that are out to get you there and it might be your partner and i find this from i find this with many of the women i work with their husbands actively try and sabotage them out of nowhere they're just starting to buy donuts and cakes and and you know disguising it as like oh you know i'm being lovely but they weren't doing this before and and the reason that that happens is because humans are pack animals we're tribe animals and so the the pack and the tribe that we are most closely identified with and a part of are the people that we want the approval of and want the acceptance of because otherwise we risk being outcast from the tribe that we are a part of and that might be your family or your friends or whoever it is and so they have the most sway over how successful you're going to be outside of yourself because they chip away at you in these social situations which can be embarrassing and can be shameful and can make you feel like you know you're not like the others and so yeah whether it be Friday night drinks and they're like, why aren't you drinking? Or you go to brunch and it's like, oh, gluten-free, gluten-free doesn't work or, you know, whatever the comments are, mm-hmm. these people slowly chip away, slowly chip away over the weeks and you end up, you end up abandoning what you're doing because you're like, oh, I'm just, I can't put up with the grief from everybody. And the truth is that, you know, a gin and tonic is pretty nice. So I'm giving up. <laughs> yep. Okay. Now stay there because what's interesting is last night I was having dinner with a friend And she was saying, oh my gosh, I put on five pounds. You got to tell me what to do. And I said, well, what's changed? And she said, well, you know, her and her husband got back together and he eats like garbage and he brings in the food. So I said, okay, well, what, what foods is he bringing in that are your triggers? Like I mentioned earlier, Oreos, right? If you bring Oreos into the house, I'm eating the bag, but you can bring pretzels into the house and I'll leave those alone. So what are the trigger foods that he is bringing in? And can you ask him to not buy those foods, like stay in his lane and and buy these foods here that he likes, but don't try to love on you and buy all this sugary garbage that is only doing you harm and triggering you. And she didn't really have an answer to that. And so I'm wondering what your answer would be to people that are in that situation, because that's not the first time I hear it from my patients as well. And you mentioned it earlier. It's an act of love. You know, it's like when you go to grandma's, come here, honey, let me, you know, cut you a piece of pie. And that's how she shows you love. And that's how some spouses do show love. But what do people do in those situations when they are living with the sabotager? Yeah, I think there's a a really unfortunate reality, which is that you need to sit down and have a difficult conversation. And actually, this is something that we I do with my clients. We formulate a script in order to be able to communicate with the people around us because often people, they don't know how to, they don't have the confidence to back themselves in these situations where they're already feeling vulnerable about their body. Many of them don't want to tell anyone they're on a diet because they don't want to be victim to failing again and everybody reminding them that they've failed on the 21st diet that they've tried. And so what we need to do is we need to communicate in a way that 
that that hits that person emotionally and gets them on board with what we're doing. And you don't want to be in a situation too where, you know, it's on Friday night, there's a group of people or whether, you know, you're in a social situation and you're ready to sort of respond to some criticism or some judgment or some even some even just some normal questions. And you sort of are like, oh, um, no, I don't uh. I, I don't know how to defend myself, right? Or, or or stand up for myself in this setting. So I think it's important to really get clear on what you need to say. And I think it needs to be about, you know, good relationship communication is always I statements, not you statements, because then you're attacking the other person. So it should be about what you need and why you're doing it and why it's important and why you would, you know, really benefit from their support. And if done, if that conversation is done correctly, um, one, it takes a little bit of courage sometimes to communicate like that. But if that's done correctly, that person will be on board. And if they're still horrible after that, you should just get rid of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they're they're unsupportive like they're not helpful if you have a heart to heart and on the other side of that they still want to sabotage you that is not a good person <laughs> that is true you know that is true i mean if you're in a loving relationship and you don't have that kind of support when you genuinely ask yeah. for it yeah it 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 might be time for a, a spousectomy where you just get rid of that or a friendectomy <laughs> spousectomy that's great <laughs> just got to cut them out so, all right, that that's that's fantastic because I think I know a lot of my listeners are in that position. Some of my patients are in that position. So now let's go back to that that dopamine need and that mm-hmm. true sugar addiction. Yeah. What are the steps that people can take to start to get out of that? Because when you're in that cycle, and I even try to to nurture some of my patients and say, listen, what I see is when you are, let's say insulin resistant and your blood sugar is on this roller coaster where you are feeding that dopamine with sugar and you're going to spike really high physiologically, biologically, you're going to spike high and then you're going to drop down low because where there's a high, there's a low in that low. That's where you're hangry, but you're getting those literal biological signals to go eat, go eat, go raise your glucose again. We don't like being this low. You got to go to the vending machine. You got to eat carbs and sugar. So that's one physiological aspect of it. But what else can people do to break this? Yeah. So I think there's two types of people when it comes to sugar addiction specifically. Uh, and it's like, you've got your moderators, which are very, a very small bunch of people. And I don't know how they do it, but they're, you know, I want their power, their superpowers. And then you've got your abstainers, your people that have tried to get off some of this stuff, but it's like, they're all in or they're all out. They're either binging or, it, you know, if it's in the house, it's gone. And that, that's definitely been my past as well. I'm just yeah. someone that if it's here, it, yep. I inhale it. And so the, you know, the, the agreement that I have with myself is that it's not here. It's not yes. that it's off limits forever. It's just that it doesn't live in my house. Mm-hmm. So, but I think one of the things that people can do is just like intermittent fasting, but it's dopamine fasting. And so that's become a really big trend, especially among amongst like entrepreneurs and high performance people is this idea of dopamine fasting, because whether it be food or whether it be screens or whether it be all of the possible things on the internet that you could distract yourself with, all of it is dopamine seeking behavior. And so because we've, um, we're losing a lot of our focus and our productivity in this era because of all of the, the distractions, that this idea of dopamine fasting is starting to come in. And you can literally start it today. So one of the first ways to start it is by turning your phone off before you go to bed. Okay, I am hearing you. I am hearing your frustration. And I was in your shoes, so I totally get it. You are tired of the doctor jumping. You are tired of being medically gaslit. You are sick of being told that you're normal when you know that your body is rebelling against you. You know that the weight gain and the fatigue and the hair loss and the low libido and the dry skin is not you. That's not how you were years ago. That's not how your body was meant to be. And that's not how you want to live the rest of your life. So I'm going to invite you to work with me and my team. We can prescribe in all 50 states, including many provinces in Canada. So we got you covered there in the thyroid and the hormone department. We have you covered. Yes, we use bioidentical hormones only, none of that synthetic garbage. And we fix you. We bring you to that optimized state where you can live with me in optimization land, where you have actual energy to get through your day. I swear you're not going to be looking at the couch at 2 p.m. 
wondering how quick you can take a nap. You will lose weight. You won't gain weight every time you go out to eat or look sideways at a brownie. We will get you to that optimized state. So I'm going to invite you to book an application call. And this is where you are going to go over everything, your health journey and all the different things you've tried and your frustrations. You're going to go over that with my team. And we will put you into the program that fits you the best. If you need prescriptions, we have you covered. So go ahead and click the book a call link in the show notes. I promise we will take good care of you. You can stop the doctor jumping once and for all. Stop wasting money on BS programs. Stop buying programs off of Instagram. People, I know you. I see you. <laughs> I know what you're doing. Looking for answers. We can fix you. You know, and and so you wake up and the phone is not on and ideally you put it in another room and everybody responds to me when I say that by saying, I use it as my alarm. Believe it or not, in 2023, alarm technology is amazing. You can buy yourself an alarm clock. I've got two of them in my house and they're fantastic. Like, you know, they're connected to Spotify and all of that kind of stuff. And so, yeah. so yeah, this, the thing one would be to just practice turning your phone off. Uh, you know, we're all really, really addicted to as well to checking our phone and, and all of these notifications. And if we turn our phone off, we kind of feel disconnected from the world. Well, that's actually kind of normal. We shouldn't be necessarily involved in the lives of thousands of people that we follow, right? right. But so yeah, turning your phone off can be one thing. Not having the TV on in the morning when you're, you know, maybe you usually put the news on or you put something on for the kids or whatever it might be, but practicing delaying that. And so we don't want to go all in overnight, get rid of everything because that will just cause a rebound effect where you miss it desperately and you want to put it all back tomorrow. So we just want to like small steps at a time. And the same with food is that, you know, you might still have the chocolate, but it'll just be starting to practice creating space between the moment that you want it and the moment that you actually have it rather than just responding on autopilot and walking straight to the cafe or going straight to the cupboard or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So I think this dopamine fasting has a lot of benefits that are outside of your physical health as well, because you can, you start to build mental resilience. You start to be able to manage yourself a little better emotionally because you're able to not be like a child fundamentally, which is responding instantly to an emotional experience that's happening by, you know, numbing it or, or, or nurturing it with sugar. So I think this idea of dopamine fasting has a lot of productivity, focus, health benefits, all wrapped up in one. I, I love that. I love it because I know even as an entrepreneur, we're also addicted to the next shiny object. So yes. as you're talking, I can't relate. Well, I can relate to the food thing a little bit. I can, but but even more so, I can relate to the next thing to do and the next thing to join and the next thing to implement and the next business venture. And yeah, I get it. I get it. I get that deeply. I do. So I can totally see how people have issues stopping because whenever it, it just kind of like, okay, like a drug addict, like an alcoholic, you can't just say, well, just stop. Mm. Like, why don't you just stop? Or if they even say, you know what? I'm just going to stop. And then they don't because eventually that, I guess, if you call it willpower or mindset in that moment wears off and then eventually they give in. So, yeah, yeah, that is that is that those are some great steps that people can do now to actually start chipping away at that sugar addiction. Now, what do you do with your clients to replace the food aspect? So it's one thing behaviorally. Mm -hmm. And to let's try to control that dopamine and, and go on a dopamine hiatus. But now what about when the food comes in and they are faced with here, we have the chocolate cake or I have, I don't know, a piece of chicken or, or a steak. I mean, you know, I might go for the steak over the cake, but what about the food choices? And this really is mm -hmm. where like, like diet culture comes in and people feel like I need to restrict this and, and, and go with this and I'll never be able to have this again. So speak on that if you would. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the answer sounds kind of fluffy, but go with me. It's I think in that situation, it's really about shifting out of that diet culture mentality, which is 
I can't have restriction, deprivation, you know, and that's the opposite of a dopamine experience in a negative way. We're telling ourselves we can't have pleasure. We can't have good things. And this might feed into a narrative about childhood trauma or your upbringing or, or whatever it might be. And, and it just compounds, right? Is negative thought on top of negative thought on top of negative thought. And you end up just being like, screw it. I'm in, I'm just, I'm all in whatever. And so I think what has to happen in this area is that it's actually a bit of a personal development journey on the way that you talk to yourself and the way that you feel about yourself. And you want to get to a situation where, and we've got a little mantra that we use with clients, which is, I love myself enough to insert thing, right? Whether I love myself enough to choose the chicken, you know, and it's about empowerment and it's about self-care rather than uh, being like, you can't have it, you naughty child. Like you can't have the good thing that everybody else gets to have. So I think it's really about changing that internal narrative that you have in your mind about with the self-loathing and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, me saying it off the cuff on a podcast, people are like, oh, sure, Maddie, I'll change that. It's probably 10 years of therapy. And it probably is, right? It probably is a bit of a journey and it's going to take a couple of years. And I don't think, uh, you know, this is why people yo-yo off on and off diets is because it takes a significant amount of time in order to change some of those stories that are showing up in our own mind about ourselves or the person that we see in the mirror. And so we need to develop this self-empowerment that comes from a place of abundance um, and the fact that you are in control and, and you're not a victim to your dopamine craving and you, and also that those foods are never off limits. All of those foods are available available to you at all times because if you're listening to this podcast, you probably live in a very abundant place. And so it's knowing that, sure, I could walk five minutes from here at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday to go to 7-Eleven, but I love myself enough to do something different, right? And so it comes from a very different place. And so I think controlling ourselves around food needs to be about that self-empowerment, leveling up your mindset, healing some of those traumas or demons or whatever that exist inside your mind that, you know, ravage your thoughts all of the time in order to be able to be in a position of control rather than in a place of deprivation and restriction. We are saying something really interesting too, because on my intake questionnaire, I always ask people about past trauma and, and past and current stressors that may be mm-hmm. affecting their health. And I'm looking at it more from a perspective of what did you go through or what are you dealing with that might be affecting your thyroid function or your cortisol or your adrenals or even your hormones. But now mm-hmm. that you're saying this, it almost makes me step back and shift not away from that, but also bring this into the the conversation. Did that trauma somehow trigger you into that restriction mode and yeah. and somehow shift your mindset to a a like a not in a poverty mindset, but just like you said earlier, I I can't have this, I can't do this. I was restricted from having that. And now it's it's hard to go back to that because it reminds someone of trauma of the past. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And that, that is pretty deep that people might have to go through some therapy or get extra help to heal that component while they are working on themselves and healing their, their bodies, their hormones, their eating, whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's still a physical aspect as well. It's not just all in the mind. Like there is, you know, your cells can be physically addicted to sugar and, you know, sugar is a psychoactive substance, which means it changes the state of your brain. And that's obviously why many of us go towards it to change our state. You know, it's the reason people have a glass of wine to change their state because the state you're in currently is obviously uncomfortable or something that you want to be out of. Um, So there is that physical component. And so I think, you know, as well for many people, people I like the idea of when people go through my program I like I have this little mantra one tweak a week we really focus on you know where do we want to be in five years not where do we want to be in six weeks Um, and the idea of that is that like if anybody comes to me and says Maddie I've got a wedding I need to lose weight I say find somewhere else like that's not how I do things and so we've got to do the physical one one step at a time as well and so we do breakfast we don't even talk about the rest of the meals we just just get a good breakfast going. Do the same thing for lunch that you've always done. Same thing for dinner. We're going to nail breakfast because people get so overwhelmed by all the changes they need to make and all the exp- expensive ingredients that they've never heard of before that they don't really know how to use. And so instead of being like, okay, Monday, throw the chocolate out, 
you know, buy 400 kilograms of kale. Let's go. It's just like for the next two or three weeks, we're just going to do breakfast. And then once we're there, we're going to do lunch. And then once we're there and then slowly, you know, we slowly step towards a healthier life and we can normalize it at a much easier pace that doesn't introduce as much restriction or deprivation because we've just removed all three of your meals every single day that you really looked forward to. So we're going to remove one at a time, but we're also going to make them really flavorful. I think that's a conversation that isn't really had in the the sort of you know unhealthy food space is that when people go to healthy food it really needs to be satisfying for your tongue like it really does you really want to look forward to healthy food and for many people the idea of that is like oh healthy food's boring or it's uninteresting and look the agricultural sector has a lot to answer for because they've diluted foods with with water and with different breeding processes for hundreds of years and so we're in a situation where a tomato in a supermarket doesn't even smell like a tomato. Like, you know, when there's a homegrown tomato, you can smell it from the other side of the room. And so all of these flavor molecules that exist in mainstream food now are a lot less. So it means that we have to go out of our way in order to create an experience that is on par with something sugary or deep fried or anything like that by getting familiar with herbs and spices. Uh, And there are so many herbs and spices that are already made. You don't have to think about them. You just chuck them in and they can make your food taste amazing. You can have chicken taste 10 different ways. So I think, yeah, the the experience for your tongue is very important in this process as well. No, definitely. Definitely. And I think I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the whole problem with the artificial sweeteners too, is that it does something to our taste buds and to our minds where we then will crave more and more of real sugar. And there's some connection there with the artificial sweeteners, which then is tied back to cancer anyway. So that just brings it all back around to, to your beginning. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. it's very interesting how just sometimes simple spices and really flavoring your foods and hitting the different parts of the taste buds, how Mm. we have the sweet and the savory and the umami and hitting those different parts of your taste buds can shift your cravings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I find too, with, with both my own journey, but all of my clients as well, that we get to a place where they might go to a birthday or whatever it might be, someone they haven't seen in a long time and they do what they've always done. And they're like, I had a piece and I just... I was kind of annoyed because I didn't like it anymore. And I really wanted to like it. Right. <laughs> I really wanted to have that past experience again. And, and cause yeah, our taste buds and our requirements change as we, as we go on this journey. Yeah, definitely. So you had mentioned that you brought in kind of the, the food manufacturers, the food producers. And mm-hmm. do you believe then that it really is kind of big food not big pharma, big food that has really misled us as to what is good nutrition, because you can literally, you, we could walk down the street and interview a hundred people and you are going to get a hundred different diets and they're all going to stand their ground as to why the way they eat is the best because they learned it somewhere, whether it's a vegan, a vegetarian, a carnivore, a keto, a plant-based, a a paleo person, a a moderation person, whatever. How do we get through all of this advice and where have we been? Why have we been misled so badly? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think my golden rule is Jeff just eat real food. So whatever the diet template is, jerf. As long as it looks like it came from a farm on your plate, then you are moving in the right direction. And I would say, generally speaking, if we're talking about, you know, the average diet in Australia or the US or Canada, that that one step can get you 80% of your results. Um, Whatever, whether it's weight loss, whether it's healing from disease, you know, you can get so much done by just eating real food for 90 to 95 to 100% of your meals. And obviously, you know, it's a big transition for many people and and moving away from, you know, anything in a bag, a box or a can. And there's obviously the argument too, that, that a lot of those foods are more expensive. However, if you're eating correctly, you're going to want to eat less or less often because you're getting enough nutrition in. And and I would say, you know, the average diet is probably deficient in protein, but very high in refined carbohydrates. But yeah, as to whether big food is is responsible, I think big food is their focus was that the population over the last hundred years has absolutely exploded around the globe. And so the focus has been production. Like how can we produce more tomatoes, more carrots, more of everything. And in that process, they They've figured out ways to grow more with less. So the soil is becoming deplete and we know there's a big conversation happening around 
transitions to regenerative farming, which is creating more nutrient dense food because you can literally relate the flavor to the nutrient density. And so anything that has barely any flavor is likely to have far less nutrients. And so that's why homegrown food much more flavor and sure it's smaller because um, big food has found ways because we we deal in weight obviously the like we pay for apples in kilo dollars per kilogram right and so we've diluted a, all of these foods using water and using different things whilst equally removing many of the nutrients uh, unintentionally but th through you know repetitive farming of the same land and so we've got these situations where visibly we know what healthy food probably should look like approximately but when we actually eat it we don't feel satisfied or we don't feel uh, fulfilled and it's because the nutrient density of these plants are far less and sure we can eat more of them but that's i think it comes back to the conversation around you know herbs and spices to make sure that you're having that experience but equally for the people that can afford it spending your money at a farmer's market where you can talk to the farmer and you can communicate about how they grew their food what they fed it, pesticides, you know, all the different different things that you can talk about with farmers, understanding how they fed their meat, because often one of the ways that mainstream farmers, you know, feed their um, their cattle before they goes out onto the the pasture is that they feed them canola feed, which is you know, after it goes through a factory of producing vegetable oil, which is really really bad for the human body, is that the leftovers from that process, because it's such high energy stuff, gets fed to cattle to fatten them up, which that's not the kind of stuff you want to be putting into your meat and so I, I, don't, I don't think necessarily there's like an evil intention I just think it's lots of business people trying to solve lots of problems with you know no real knowledge about what's best for humanity people health and now we're, we're suffering the consequences where people like you and I are trying to now solve the health problem that came from that that and so you know I think it's an ever ever spinning ball down a hill and it keeps you know gaining momentum but we've got to do something about that. Right. And it's really what we grew up with, too. Now, you might have grown up with with those. You might have grown up lucky with parents that served you and only ate real food. I do. I, I hear of this happening. I can't believe it because my parents weren't like that. We grew up with the white bread and the cereal and the pizza Same. and the goulash. And and it just gets ingrained in you in such a young age and actually starts the addiction process very young. So your taste buds mm -hmm. shift and your body, actually your body chemistry starts to shift at a young age where, like yeah. you mentioned, we're feeding kids the sugar and we're wondering why they have ADD, ADHD and autism. So we're feeding their brains this inflammatory food and they become addicted at a very young age. And then they can't easily clean their food up or eat real food because it doesn't even taste right. They don't even know what what a real tomato tastes like, what a real garden yeah. tomato tastes like. That's odd to them. And if they didn't have all of that in their youth or in their childhood even, they probably would taste that tomato and say, wow, this is sweet and really good. But to them, it's not sweet enough. They want the ice cream. They want the cereal. They want the ho-hos. Well, and if you look at um, recipe books from the 1800s, so I've been I've been sort of deep down this flavor rabbit hole. It's most things were flavored with a little bit of salt, and sauces were you know you, it really was just a small dollop on the side of your plate. It was a very low volume, and that's because the food itself had so much more flavor. And there's there's been loads of studies and competitions run that were mo mostly done in the U.S. around solving the chicken problem in the U.S. throughout the 50s and 60s, and that was how can we get bigger chickens that grow faster in order to be able to feed the masses basically because you know fried chicken be became a big part of the, the the culture in parts of america and along that process and it happened really quickly the they were able to get the broiler chicken to be able to to grow the fastest to grow the biggest the most muscle mass but it was the least flavorful and so that's where we see the the beginning of recipe books that really start encouraging lots of herbs and spices throughout the cooking process because the meat itself was once really flavorful and many people that listening might be surprised but in Australia in our mainstream supermarkets you can buy kangaroo meat and pretty much all of the kangaroo meat is is naturally hunted 
because we have a kangaroo problem. Like millions are culled every year and it's so tasty by itself. It's so delicious because one, it lived its own natural life and it's a very active, healthy animal. But two, it's not been through any genetic modification or dilution in in the creation of this meat or the, the raising of this meat. And so it's really delicious. And I know that in the US as well, it's the same if you hunt your own elk, right? Is that it's really yummy. Like it tastes delicious. And so I think that's, you know, an indication that, yeah, with the way that we've gone about food with mainstream agriculture is to really dilute the flavor. And by, you know, by default, that naturally defaults, uh, results in a less, a lower nutritional content as well. So yeah, it's sort of a catch 22. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We had an overpopulation of deer here. I'm a deer hunter. And this past winter I posted, you know, my big buck that I shot and I got not lambasted on Instagram, but a couple of comments from people that were just disgusted that I shot a deer. And I said, do you know what would happen if we allow an overpopulation of deer, the same with the kangaroo in Australia, they will Mm -hmm. become disease infested. They will die a long, slow, painful death. Yeah from chronic wasting disease rather than, like you said, living a good life, living till the end of their life and then being harvested for food to feed us. And it's real meat. They haven't been feeding on, on canola oil feed. They've been feeding on real food their entire life. And then that then feeds us and nourishes us. So it just makes sense. It just makes sense to eat real food. And it's so much more of a natural process than going to a supermarket from a, uh, you know, and buying meat from something that was farmed. And I'm not, I'm not judging that I do that as well. But my point is that shooting and hunting something is infinitely more natural with way less steps of manufacture and interference and all of those different things. So, you know, I think it's just a bit of um, social conditioning that people are like, Oh, you killed something with your bare hands or with a gun. Like, you know, how confronting, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, how do you think your your meat gets to you from McDonald's? Yeah. You know, what I mean, hey. totally. <laughs> so on the topic of protein, and you had mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier, and I love talking about this because I am a huge proponent of protein first. And I see, I see my ladies coming to me and they are not eating enough protein. They think they are, but then we total mm-hmm. it up and it's usually around like 50 grams per day, and they think they're eating enough. What are your thoughts on protein and what do you do with your clients that are so protein deficient? Yeah, so I think there's a misconception just as you highlighted that uh, the Western diet is has too much protein in it. And I would actually say it's funny that we're already talking about big food. I think big food has a lot to answer for there because... The reason that they promote high carb diets from a business farming standpoint is because it costs about 10 times as much to produce a gram of protein than it does a a gram of carbohydrates. And so with with knowing that, then you can start understanding or why does McDonald's promote their plant-based burger or why does, you know, all of these fast food places that were once places where you went and ate lots of chicken or whatever it was, and they're starting to produce all of these plant-based options. I think that's a combination of good economics by the businesses uh, and also the way that, you know, social condition is, is goes around plant-based foods. But I think that, yeah, most people that I see protein deficient, I think protein deficiency drives sugar cravings as well, because you're not nourished uh, and protein is one of the most satiating nutrients that you can eat. And I always tell people, if you want to go back for seconds, go for the protein first. Like if you are still hungry or you want a snack, we want to go for a protein snack. And and for me, I usually go, so we deal in kilos over here. It's sort of, you know, one, one to two grams of protein per kilo of body weight. And many people need to build up to that because they're, they're not used to eating that much and they, they can make them feel a bit weird if they go straight in the deep end. And so, but one of the things too, I think is the greenwashing of red meat is that many people, particularly women, look at red meat and think, oh, there's lots of fat in it. And so we actually, you know, there's this greenwashing idea uh, of people that go towards chicken and like chicken and salmon are like the two, you know, sort of healthy person meats or, you know, animal proteins. And if you go down the rabbit hole, like salmon farming is absolutely horrific. (laughs) Here's something that's going to blow your mind. So I I spoke to somebody just recently who's a part of agricultural sustainability in the EU. Mm -hmm. And in the EU, um, they're really good with their laws. They're much better than Australia and they're much better than the US. And so what they're about to do is they're going to 
make it illegal for salmon sellers to advertise their salmon as omega-3 rich because the omega-3s are so low in the farmed salmon because they live in such a toxic environment that it's no longer a place to get you good fatty acids, which is like wild because we, they're fatty. They're meant to be fatty fish, right? Right, and right. So, yeah, so I think chicken and chickens often live, never see the light of day. They're in overpopulated areas, caged up. And so I think actually that, that we usually go towards chicken and salmon, but actually they're probably the two worst, <laughs> um, you know, on the list of factory farmed foods. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not bad or to be avoided, but they're probably down the list. But yeah, that belief that red meat, because it comes with fat, it's bad. But I think there's so much, so much benefit to eating red meat, you know, whether it be kangaroo or whether it be beef or whatever it might be. But right. yeah, I think protein deficiency is really common and many people remove that out of their diet or eat less of it because they associate meat with fat and that old low fat marketing of like, Oh, you know, it's low fat. It's going to make, make you uh, lose weight and that kind of thing of, you know, the seventies, eighties and nineties. And so I think we've got to break this association with animal protein containing fat and that fat being bad. I think that's a, that's completely incorrect. I agree. I agree. And so many of our clients are from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and that's yeah. just been ingrained in them. And it's still there. It is still there. They can't move yeah. past that, that low fat craze. And it was only for a time, but yeah. man, that is just burnt into their brains. It just, ugh, yeah. Totally, totally. Well, and a, a good way to go about the just getting more protein in is that when you eat, just start with the protein on the plate, like yep. eat the protein first, because if you want, if you end up leaving anything behind, then, you know, you, the way I think about it is protein's the most important fat second, carbohydrates third. Mm -hmm. And and the way that I rationalize that is that you could live a whole life on a carnivore diet and be really healthy. But if you never ate protein again, you would die pretty quickly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, prioritize the protein carbohydrates have got their place. I, I find, especially with, um, hormones and cycling women, carbohydrates are very important. Important. It's not about demonizing them in any way, but I think there's a certain way to, you know, go about low carb diets and keto diets and stuff like that. But I think carbs are very important, but protein, I think is the most important nutrient. I did not even pay you to say that, but that is exactly what I tell people is eat the protein <laughs> first, right? And yes. I mean, I'm sorry, even if there's vegetables, because you know, the women are going to be like, well, don't I have to eat my broccoli that's on mm -hmm. the plate? No, you can actually leave the broccoli if you are full. As long yeah. as you ate your steak. Totally. Yeah, 100%. So I love that you said that and drove that point home to my audience. So Maddie, if you could leave the listeners with one thing, I'm totally putting you on the spot. I didn't even prep you for this. If you could leave them with one thing, one nugget, one thing, what would it be? One thing. It would be to, I would encourage people to take ownership of their health uh, and their own journey and know that you are completely in the driver's seat of your own life. And that that starts with one step at a time. You don't have to change it all today, but taking ownership of one small thing at a time and mastering that and then move to the next thing is going to get you to long-term sustainable health, which I think is what we all really want. We don't want it to splash in the pan experience. You know, we want to actually feel good in a few years from now. So taking ownership is where that begins. Mm, I love that. That was perfect. I even put you on the spot. That was perfect. So Maddie, you have, you have something for the listener. So tell us about that and then where they can find you. And if they want to work with you and you have a kick-ass podcast, I love your podcast. So go just give them it all. Yeah. Thank you. So Amy, you have been on the show before, so obviously you made it all the more better. So come and hang out and listen on the podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die is the title of that. Um, and we also have, which we've recently released, uh, a bit of a 10-day challenge. And the idea of this is that if you're new to this idea of emotional eating or you've got a cha that challenging voice in your head, which we kind of talked about here when it comes to diets and you yo-yo on and off and on and off. So the idea of this 10-day challenge is it's to begin your journey to end your unhealthy relationship with food and diets. So feel free to sign up to that. And of course, the website as well. So maddielansdown.com. Put it all in the show notes, but I love that challenge. I would really encourage people to do that because it's only going to make you better. It's only going to take you to that next step. Even if this is your first step, make it be your yeah. first step. Totally. Yeah. Thanks. Maddie, thank you so much for joining us and imparting all of your wisdom. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I'm glad that we finally did this. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely.